Hi there, my name's Chloe Dutchke and welcome to the SciRise Sessions. We're shining the light on entrepreneurship in cybersecurity and uncovering some of the most authentic stories from cybersecurity startup founders. SciRise is a venture accelerator program funded by NTT and Deakin University. Our guest for this episode is Sam Crowther. He's the founder of Casada, a cybersecurity solution for bot mitigation designed to beat cyber criminals at their own game. Sam got his start in entrepreneurship pretty early on, and his story and the following success has been incredibly unique. The lessons are great, though. We talk about fundraising, managing sales cycles, and the importance of picking the right people to work with. Hi, Sam. Welcome. Always great to chat to you. And we've often had the privilege of having you come in and do a founder fireside chat with cohorts in the program or in boot camp. So it's nice to have this on the record today. It's a story that's always been really fascinating to me and the team and the founders in the program, but also the wider community because <laughs> you may hate this or love this, but you're the young gun in cybersecurity who's created an impressive solution. You've landed a significant amount of uh, money and funding. And you also have a former Australian Prime Minister as an advisor, which is amazing. No small feat, Sam. To kick off, um, would love to hear about the genesis of Casada. So this is back in 2015. You're 18 years old. How does this play out? Yeah, so... The idea actually came, uh, there was a few different critical moments which led to the first version of what we do, but basically all of them came from experiencing different subsections or different manifestations of the same problem. And then the ultimate issue for, for us was when we actually were trying to build a product which we knew was going to fall ill to sort of abuse like this. Uh, and that time I was working back at Macquarie Bank and really realized, okay, there's a huge opportunity if we can if we can actually solve this particular issue. We had feedback from some people that I'd been lucky enough to meet, you know, while I was starting to kick my professional career off, who shared the view that, hey, if you could build a product that did solve this problem, it would be you know, incredibly valuable to a lot of different organizations. And so I through, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend was introduced to someone who did some angel investing and, you know, somehow convinced him and one of his business partners to put 50 grand into this business run by someone who never run a business before. And, you know, we went from there, built the sort of first version of the product, spent about a year and a half building the product, raised a little bit more angel money and landed our first customer and that was, I guess, you know, the, the genesis of, you know, 18 months in 30 seconds. Which is pretty impressive. Like, first of all, to take that risk to be like, ah, actually, no, we can build it. There is a problem here. And then also the, I say wait, it's not quite the right word, but it's not insignificant to take funding when, you know, you're at such an early stage. Did you feel mm. any pressure to kind of see the return quickly or how confident were you? Yeah, I mean, there absolutely was pressure in that guard. You, know, you never want to let anyone down that's taking a bet on you. The other side of it was, you know, I, I again, was quite young. So I'd also never seen that sort of money in one place at one time, even though at the moment it was like $50,000. So there was a lot of 
you know, it, it, it felt like a really big milestone. And I think looking back on it, it doesn't feel as big as, as some of the things that we've gone on to do. But, you know, it really was very huge for us at that point in time. Yeah, amazing. And then you talk about the first customer acquisition. Within 18 months and having an MVP, so going from ideation stage to then having that customer, did you recognise at the time how significant that was? I, I don't think we truly appreciated it at the time. There was a moment, however, sort of three months after our first customer. So we we were very fortunate in that like we've built a product which generally can solve some pretty hair on fire problems and a lot of people have them. And so there was sort of our first customer in Sydney was, you know, they weren't a, weren't a huge business. I think it was $2,000 a month revenue from them. And within the space of three months, we landed two or three more. Some of the other ones were much more significant. And so there was just sort of five of us and, you know, all, all mates, all pretty young folk. And, and we landed ourselves in a, in a few pretty serious enterprises very quickly. And that was both really exciting because we we're like, wow, clearly there's enough value in what we're doing for these people to pay our salaries to keep us alive and, and to continue doing it. But at the same time, it was very much a lot of blood, sweat and tears that went into getting us into a position where when when things caught fire, we could be there to save them. And it was a lot of head, like a lot of banging, you know, my head against a brick wall because it was just me that was out talking to potential customers and whatnot for that 18 months. And a lot of no's, a lot of no's. And yeah, we were just, we were very confident that we'd stumbled across something. So we, we kept sort of pushing through and then through a relationship, which, you know, I think I developed sort of seven months prior, I just get a call out of the blue, literally on a Friday afternoon saying, hey, one of my customers is having a problem you can solve. And that's sort of, how it went from there. And our first two or three customers were like that, where it was relationships that, you know, we'd maybe developed six or seven months earlier, which planted the seed. And then all of a sudden it it turned out there was something we could help with. I love that you bring that up because it's a great lesson to learn at the early stage. And that is relationship building. And in reflection, obviously you can recognize that that was a key part of that process. When did you realize that that was actually key to kind of the customer acquisition and the success of having your solution adopted into a company? I think after those first two or three was when we realized this was very, very important, particularly as such a small company at that time with people who really actually didn't have a network in the industry. We figured the only way we can do it is if we find like force multipliers. So I think in the super early days, we worked with a small web development company who ran some websites for some of their clients. And then the guys over at Hivint before they were acquired, mm-hmm. uh, I'd worked for them briefly, actually, after their first company, Stratsec, got acquired and became BAE Dedica. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to know who they were and send them an email and they said, hey, yep, let's chat. And after that happened, there was also a bit of a force multiply in our existing customer base where... Almost every customer we brought on, because we did such a good job for them and did everything that we could to make sure they were successful with what we were doing, that started to open more doors as well. And, you know, we really made sure we leveraged, I guess, both of those channels. Because, again, at that point, there was still no one else selling. It was just myself who didn't really know anyone. Uh, I was slowly starting to build up my own networks. Which is amazing. I think that, like... I mean, we're we're having a laugh about this now in reflection, but to, to, to think about this... 
18, 19 year old who's out there selling in what has become very important solution, cybersecurity solution for enterprise customers. It's incredible. I do love this idea of recognizing that force multiplier, not only in the relationships and networks. And it's interesting too, because like you said, you only had a couple, but in recognizing who those key people were who would advocate for you, that was important. I'm interested to know when you acquired those customers, you mentioned things like making sure they had a great experience and ensuring their success. What were the tangible things that you were doing at the early stage, which is probably now what we would call, you know, customer success or customer relationship management? Mm. What were the things you were doing at the early stage and how has that changed over time? Yeah, so at the early stage, firstly, there was the component of obviously making sure the product worked and solved the problem that they had. That was a big one. And then on top of that was actually providing, you know, a lot of insight to them as to how our product functions so they could understand it and understand other ways in which it could be applied to their business. And then from our side as well, making sure that we bring more than just a product. So advising on certain things we may have experience in, not in a formal way or anything, but just as part of the relationship. So really putting in effort to make sure that like we're not just another product because the early customers are so, well, at least for us, were so critical to our success, we had to make sure that like we truly went above and beyond in any way. And not just because of something that we wanted to do, but for the business, it turns out it was actually the right decision. I don't think we thought about it like that at the time. We just thought about it as, hey, we, we genuinely love working with these people. But I think that really made a difference in terms of the relationship that we're able to build with them and the influence they then had on the product. And then... You also attract a certain type of customer when you're at that early stage. And it's usually someone who wants to have influence and impact on a product as well. And, you know, it's sort of a a mutually beneficial relationship. If they really understand what you're doing to a very deep level, they can influence it, which means they get a better product. And then you also get to understand how they think and can build a better product and help them out in other ways. How did you then identify? So you had almost like a bit of a ripple effect or, you know, that network effect of having one customer and then, you know, word of mouth and industry kind of rallies behind you and supports you. How did you know your target market at that early stage? So it was a bit of a shotgun approach in the sense that we didn't have a specific vertical we went after. What we realised very early on was that the sort of company that was going to need us was probably one that ran a website with substantial revenue or brand value to them. And that sort of helped, I guess, target the types of customers we tried to work with. It was a bit difficult because it wasn't like we could say, okay, uh, you know, healthcare or finance or whatever. It was more, you know, we had to take a bit, bit more of a general approach, which I'm not sure if that, you know, helped or hindered us. Turned out okay in the end. But we were probably not as methodical about that as we could have been. I think we probably could have pushed a bit harder to really understand a specific vertical and go down it much quicker. Uh, You know, we had some early success in e-commerce and then sports betting. We probably could have put more effort into very early on really focusing on those verticals. But I think in the end, it was okay because what it proved to us is that we can operate across almost anything. Mm -hmm. You know, working now with tech companies to regular old school e-commerce to modern e-commerce businesses, sports betting, retail energy and gas, like the whole gambit. So that was a bit of a valuable exercise from our end. With that breadth of experience now in dealing with a whole host of customers across different verticals, 
do you have a favorite? Like, is there one that just, you know, you seem to like, whether it's e-com or utilities or something like that, is there one that just really seems to have a good synergy for you? Not really. And and I only say that because they all face some common problems, but they also have a lot of unique problems, which I find very fascinating. You know, the sort of fraud and abuse that goes on in the hotel industry versus retail and gas versus regular e-commerce it's night and day. And that is just very, like from a security, I'm fascinated by that from the security angle. I think that's very cool. And as for working with them, like I think all, we've been very lucky in that all of our customers are actually really awesome to work with. We've, we've lucked out in terms of the types of people we've managed to work with at the companies that we do business with. And that makes mm-hmm. it, makes it very enjoyable. And it makes us, you know, want to do more for them than, than we otherwise would if we really love them. I love this. It's all coming from a genuine place. Like you, as you're building and evolving and, and now you're, you know, six years down the track to still have that same philosophy where you're working with good people. I think it's incredibly important for the success of the solution, but also just the enjoyment of work, right? Absolutely. Yes. You've got to love, love what you do because it's a slog. <laughs> it is a slog. And to that point, have you had to, like are the customer relationships that you've had to kind of Nick's at an early stage or you've recognised, oh, I can see some red flags here. This is not going to be good for us in the long run. Yeah, so yes, from two angles. One is like personality and the way in which companies want to work with us. We've absolutely pulled the plug early on because we just figured they were just not going to operate in a way that was going to be benefit, like create a mutually beneficial relationship, but also what they do. So We've been approached by organizations who we just, we do not agree with what they, their business is and we just will not work with them. That's the other side of it. You know, I think security is a bit of an interesting one because even if companies may not be doing things that are, you know, the most like moral and ethical, as long as, you know, as long as it's legal and, and not hurting anyone, you know, we're very much of the view that we absolutely want to, we want to work with them just because, not only do we secure their business, we actually ultimately impact their customers. And so if one of their customers doesn't have an issue because of something that we've managed to prevent on one of our customers' websites, we that is a net win. But if an organization is doing things which we, you know, are not comfortable with, yeah, and it's hard, it's hard to do that. We've had a few like relatively big opportunities that we've just had to say no because we we just don't agree with what they're doing. And it, it's not, yeah tends to get a bit hairy, but I think that's something that is pretty important is, you know, we've put a lot of effort into understanding our limits as an organization and what we stand for. So for us, it's not been too difficult. We have a pretty, you know, well-known framework where we can figure out if someone is, you know, going to be a company we work with or not. And for us, at least, I'm, I'm glad we've gone down that route because I would never want to feel like we've got to a point where, you know, we've not sold out, but just compromised on who we are and what we stand for just for some revenue. I think that's a, it's a bit short term, unfortunately. And it's often a bit of a conundrum for entrepreneurs who are at the early stage when cash is king. And if there's a potential customer or even if your focus is on product development and you're wanting that feedback from someone who's actively using your solution, it's very hard sometimes to make that call around ethical alignment or even just value alignment, personality alignment, all that kind of stuff. Do you have advice or have any thoughts on how someone who's grappling with that idea at the moment could handle it? Look, it it is a hard 
call and it's going to vary from situation to situation but look i again we're probably i'm probably a little biased in that we've not made the decision to move forward with anyone that we don't like or don't agree with so we've not experienced what could come of that you know from some people i know who have gone down that route it's caused them a whole wall of problems from keeping the team together because all of a sudden there's a you know a rift where people are probably on one side of the argument or the other which isn't good but yeah again like that's a hard one i don't know yeah. maybe maybe ultimately if it keeps your business alive you can like you can do more good in the world than what you're going to you know have to to uh i don't know what the right word is but gonna have to compromise on in the short term mm. that's yeah that's a hard one let's switch gears for a second now so you're coming to us live from new york what was that but obviously we can hear the australian accent and we know that you're an aussie but what was that move like to the us and why 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 did you choose to base yourself in the states yeah so the move was interesting it happened pretty suddenly i was on a work trip over here meeting with some potential prospects that were interested in working with us and one of them was Hyatt so I'd known the CISO over there for a year or two beforehand so starting to you know, get to know him pretty well and some of the team that he worked with and it just became so clear that in order for us to grow out our business in the US I had to be here like there just wasn't going to be another way and so I I made the decision initially to pack up and move to Chicago for Hyatt so I was there in person, you know, CSM, ran them through the POC while I was there. Turns out we did a good job and they ended up purchasing from us, which was awesome. And one of our best customers and biggest customers that we, you know, that we've managed to build over the last few years. That was good. But yeah, it was terrifying. I mean, like I, you know, moved to a new country where I didn't really know anyone, didn't know how it all operated, had to navigate all the immigration system. It just all the stuff that comes with it. I'm very fortunate in that, like I don't have a family or anything like that. And so for me to just pick up and move wasn't wasn't a big of an issue. For, it didn't impact anyone else, basically. But yeah, it absolutely had a sort of impact on on my, me. But it was the right decision for sure because we won Hyatt. We've been working with them ever since. They're a huge publicly referenceable customer of ours as well. They do case studies. They speak at conferences with us. And the value of that is like you can't. It's huge. Amount on it. Yeah. I'm interested to know, so obviously they're a, they are a big advocate, but to actually get case studies and have them partner with you in different speaking initiatives is very impressive and, you know, there's it's not really a dollar amount you can put on that um, in terms of how it builds your rep- reputation. How did you negotiate that? Is that in your contracts? Is that like how, how does that work? So it wasn't. But after they'd signed and been using us for a little while, they were genuinely just so happy with what we did that they said they would be happy to do this. Like, that's usually what it is. I I think almost everyone we work with at the start says, no, we never do case studies. We never talk about this stuff publicly. Uh, And almost all of our customers now are happy to do case studies and talk about us publicly. And I think in in the world of security too, there's often a kind of, you know, people want it on the down low it's it's a sensitive topic in some ways um mm. and it's not necessarily one that you want to shout from the rooftops but um okay so it's just been in the genuine use of the product the success of the product for them yeah. as a business that they're willing to get on board 
again, it comes back exactly. to that relationship building, I guess. Yeah, and that's it. Like we we do put a lot of effort into again, like making sure that our customers like really get an unbelievable experience with the product and then us as a business. Mm. When it comes to hiring the people, not only just in the internal team, but the ones that do work with customers, one of the things which is consistent through every interview at every stage is like we review, are they going to interact with customers in a way that's going to make us proud and is going to better Casada and the understanding that people have of us in the market and that, that we work with. And, and if not, then we just won't do it because it's not something we're prepared to compromise on. Oh, great. That's a great hiring philosophy. Are there certain indicators that you look for in, in that process? Yeah, a biggest one is are they, first of all, empathetic. Um, mm. You know, we're, we're in the business of security. And so we need to be able to, first of all, understand our customers and what's going to be driving them to make decisions and think certain ways. And usually it's probably going to be reactive. Something bad's happened. Okay. Let's empathize with that. And then, you know, it's also important to understand who we're up against, right? It's people. So you've got to be able to empathize with the people on the other side. Why are they doing it? How can we, you know, how can we create something that's going to really disincentivize them? And the other side of it is like, absolutely. Are there someone that's trustworthy? Because again, we're in security, which inherently means you just, you get access to a lot of, confidential information from customers just through conversations. So you absolutely need to be trustworthy because they're, they're placing a bet on you know anyone that they work with in this space and we're going to make sure it's not a misplaced bet. Absolutely. Oh, two really great points there. Again, this is all coming back to this relationship building, which can be a hard lesson to learn if you don't know it or it's not inherently in you at the start. But this idea of empathy is really important, I think, in, in cyber or even other tech solutions, you can forget that you're a human creating something for other human beings. Like, yes, it's a it's a tech solution, but mm. the people using it are human and they'll have certain feelings yeah. about it and certain pain points that actually can be quite true to them and affect them in certain ways that you're solving and alleviating that pain. So remembering that it's humans selling to humans, it's, it's an important thing to know and also sets you apart in an industry that can can often forget that. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, I think it's a, been a big reason as to why we've been able to, you know, work with the sort of people that we have been. Mm-hmm. And so when you move to the States, you've got this hiring philosophy. How are you going with team building at the moment across different continents? Yeah. So in particular with COVID has added an interesting dimension, which has almost been good in a sense from the everyone was remote for a good period there. So it wasn't like there were any in-person conversations and remote conversations. We really only started building out a proper US team at the start of 2019. Oh, sorry, start of 2020, my bad. At the start of 2020, there was two of us, including myself in the US by the end of 2020, sort of seven or eight of us. You know, it's been, I think just having me here has really helped in terms of hiring the right sort of people, making sure they understand what we're about and building the relationships with them. And you know, they've been the, the respective leaders we've hired. Neil, our CMO, has been able to bring on some unbelievable people to work in his team in marketing. DC, who runs sales, has got some unbelievable team members, you know, in, in his sales team who, you know, you speak to any of them and they're all just, you know, first and foremost, good people who, you know, who want the best fathers. And I think that's that's been a huge thing. And also we have a few, like, practical things as well. You know, we make people... 
we assign people random conversations called donuts. I'm not sure if you've seen donut, uh, the software. I have, yep. I have, yes. We make, you know, we get people to do them every two weeks to meet just, you know, others in the business they wouldn't mm-hmm. otherwise get to meet. At our all hands that we do every two weeks, we get all sorts of different people to present on work that they're doing and whatnot. We run hackathons where different people from areas of the business get to work together and build things, you know, even if they're not technical that they may not have otherwise mm-hmm. get to build. And as a leadership group, we put a lot of effort into making sure that at the front and center of not just saying, all right, these are the values we represent as a business, but there's the activities that support that. So, you know, s- simple things. And again, this is not going to be appropriate to every stage business, but gifting programs, right? Someone you work with does something awesome. We wanted a mechanism by which you could, you know, recognize that and give them everything from a slab of beer to a gift card or some coffee at, at a shop you know, working with then some charities where, you know, if, again, if someone does something awesome internally, give them some money to donate to a charity of, of their choice so they can, you know, just extend the impact above and beyond the team at least and the customers that we work with. Mm, yeah, so really living those values out in that kind of socially supportive way that really, yeah, that supportive culture, empathy, all that kind of stuff that keeps coming back mm. to being an important value for Casada. And just to loop back in on the donut dates for those who don't know what they are, they're like a um, a mechanism for I want to say forced, but that sounds awful. Like to, <laughs> like linking people up in the company in a kind of yeah. um, in a random way so that people are that schedules like a social a social meeting mm. in essence, really. Yeah, exactly. Great fun. Yeah, they are good fun. And it just, it, it, I think, especially given the last 12 months that we've had, it is easy to relax into that siloed work environment where you forget not being in the office, how important those little incidental social interactions are. And so the things that you've outlined here are really tangible ways that you're continuing to perpetuate and build that important culture that it's not only good for the team itself, but obviously extends far beyond that into interactions with customers and things. Yeah, exactly. I think it's something that is absolutely like very critical to us and we mm. make sure we keep that at the centre of, of just like who we are and what we do, which yeah, it takes effort. Yeah. Like someone said to me once, I think it was one of our investors, like culture is kind of like air conditioning. You don't notice it when it's working, but it's very, very clear when it's broken. And so it's good that, you know, we're in a spot where, it just it's working and it's because right we put a lot of effort into keeping it that way <laughs> yeah I love that quote I've not heard that before it's fantastic especially when you're you're a high growth company culture is one thing that can easily get out of whack quickly when you've got new people mm. coming in and so I think these these initiatives that you've got are fantastic to kind of make sure you're keeping on top of the nurturing of the culture yeah exactly I'm interested to talk about sales cycles with you. So mm-hmm. I know, I mean, it's notorious for startups selling into enterprise that one of the biggest hurdles to overcome is the length of a sales cycle. And that's understandable yeah. for many reasons. You know, you touched on it earlier in, in essence that you're a cybersecurity product. People need to trust you. And that's not only relationship building, but that's in things like procurement and, you know, legal and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How have you managed the sales cycles and what has that been like for you? Yeah. it. Oh, in the early days, it was very difficult. It took ages. 
was just a lengthy process. Again, we were lucky enough where, you know, sort of a few of the early customers were really good and helped expedite a lot of that. But again, we'd built relationships with them over the previous year, 18 months while we were building the company. Where we've found a lot of success is, you know, obviously once we landed our first few customers and could talk about them to other prospects, that changed the game a lot. Like when we could, you know, tell other companies that we're working with sports, real estate, and others very early on, made the dynamic very different just because, you know, these are other big companies and they they trust us. And, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better about making my bet on Casada. And then the other side of it was there's, we're fortunate in that there's a lot of ways in which we can help companies. And so there's a real land and expand model for us um, mm. where, you know, we can go into an organization and we've done this with a few and the initial contracts maybe worth $30,000 for a year. And then within 24 months, they're spending $600,000 a year with us. So that is, is a bit unique. I understand to us, but you know, if possible, absolutely do it because first of all, it's great validation for, you as, a, as an organization, any of your investors, because the product's genuinely doing such a good job and is adding so much value, they want to, they want more of it. So that's awesome. And then it's easier to take one deep relationship with a customer and go, you know, all the way down to the bottom than, you know, have five customers and have a very, very shallow relationship with each. So that's how we managed, I guess, growing early on was making sure we're working with companies as much as possible. And, and that took time, right? That took like two years, three years with some of them to get to the point where we were rolled out across most of their business. With that kind of hook in and the land and expand model, were you looking strategically at the company and thinking, ah, actually, instead of going straight to the security team, this makes sense to go to the marketing team or, you know, some kind of operations team instead? Is that Was that what you mean by that? It was more so so working with the security team and then mapping out all of their internet properties in our case. So it's our, well, these are all the websites you run. <clears throat> How can we protect them all? Because you usually start with one website or a subcomponent of a website. Mm-hmm. So for us to expand in that sense is not a huge burden on the customer because it's just a matter of turning us on on the different websites. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I understand that we're very fortunate in that regards. Yeah. But I guess that also means that your entry point, if it's under a certain, like you mentioned, a $30,000 $30, contract for a year, it's easier to get into the organisation by that route and then yeah. know that, okay, there's potential here to, to expand through their own network and then up that. And, and that makes a difference for things like procurement and who needs to approve what mm. and budgets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a great way for the like our customers to get their toes wet with us because, again, like if you're a big organization and, and back in the early days when we were like four or five kids under the Harbour Bridge working, for them to justify $30,000 spend, much easier, right? And it can be yeah. done much quicker. So then we're in, we've proven ourselves, okay, well, let's grow at a rate that everyone's comfortable with. Yeah. Which, look, there's good advice in there too. And I understand what you're saying about, you know, the disclaimer that your product's different in that you have the ability to do that. But I think that's important for other entrepreneurs to consider too is that, okay, well, what's like a a taster of that painkiller that you offer? Like what is it? Like think strategically across the business about what is, you know, a a good test that might get you in and from there how you can kind of, show your value in a wider sense. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So sales cycle now, are there any things that you do to shorten that? I know you mentioned early days was really difficult 
What's it like now? And does it matter less because there's money in the bank? It, it does matter a bit less now. You know, we still want to make sure it's optimized, both to make the life simple for our customer. Like we don't, we, we do our best to make sure we're very easy to do business with. But then also for us, you know, we need some degree of confidence in our ability to predict when revenue is going to come in so that we can, you know, know what to spend and when we can spend it. So, you know, there's a combination of, you know, making sure MSAs are simple and getting them done in tandem to a POC, just, you know, mm-hmm. speeding things up by parallelizing them in that way. And then the other side of it is also, again, going in under the right angle. So if you're trying to solve a problem for someone that's really painful now, they're going to move quicker than if you're trying to solve a problem that's theoretical or that could happen. Like we, you know, again, got very lucky in that a few of our customers came to us and the hair was on fire. And we went from no real relationship to in production, protecting them and then paying within a week. Um, Wow. And then contracts are that that month, like it, yeah. And so that sort of scenario is if you if you have a product that's can help when someone is in pain, that's the best way because it mm. you know it it proves that in the moment that you like you absolutely can stand up to to the problem and right defend them or you know, protect them in whatever way you need to. Yeah, which is amazing, and I mean it's not the case for a lot of startups or solutions, but. If anything, that kind of story just helps people realign with the fact that, no, you've got to be solving that or, like, alleviating that pain, the, the now pain, not not a potential future one. Yeah, exactly, right. Insurance versus a painkiller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's move now to fundraising. So mm. you've – what's your experience been like with fundraising? So you've done – Obviously, you've mentioned angel investment early on, yeah. which kickstarted you. From there, how did you approach the various rounds? Yeah, it was at the start a little bit out of hoc. We got introduced by pure chance from the one of our advisors in the Australian government. We went through the Accelerating Commercialization Program and he introduced us to Dave Shane and the fund at OIF. And then I got introduced to Danny Gilligan from reinventure through sort of another VC that I built a bit of a relationship up with. And we got along really well was what it came down to. We weren't at looking to raise at that particular point in time. It was probably, you know, six months after that we were probably more interested in doing it. But like we genuinely got along with them both so well and they were super, super aligned to what we were trying to do and then also us as individuals. So built relationships up with them over probably six months before we started to have serious conversations so they could sort of see how we were tracking as a business. As you know, Aussie VCs tend to want a bit more revenue than counterparts in the US. And so, you know, when we started talking with them, you know, we were probably doing about 200, 250 grand a year by the time we closed the deal, maybe half a million dollars a year. So they got to see that like we were actually progressing on that front, which for them was good confidence building for our a round which was a bit different well, again it was a chance meeting we we talked to a bunch of you know vcs just randomly over the time but then we we met mike zimmerman from main sequence at an event and just got along he had some really good experience at some previous venture funds with companies in similar spaces to us which we really liked and it was just really clearly a good operator and so that's you know that's why we went down the, the path with him and that's been hugely beneficial. So I think like the 
what's probably becoming kind of clear is the people, people, people. <laughs> like mm. the partners matter so much. And their support of, you know, of us and me when things are going as great as we want them to is has been unreal. Like there's been never a point where anyone's getting thrown under the bus or toys are getting thrown out of the pram. Like they they're just awesome and they're they're here to help. And then Incutel was, was interesting from a you know being their first, I think well their first at least like Australian investment that was a very different process that was very technology driven so that was mm. pretty cool validation on our end to be like all right these guys think the technology we've built is cool enough to invest in and warrants an investment that was a bit of a slow one it was much less around the you know doing this for the dollars in the bank it was more hey this is great validation for us so that's probably an example of a strategic investor um, mm-hmm. we had a few customers that were actually interested in investing we didn't go down that route earlier on just at that point in time it didn't make a lot of sense but someone like an incutel where you know they represent the intelligence community that that's pretty validating in most markets that we will sell into so that was that was how we viewed the incutel investment and then for our series b which was when turnbull invested and joined the board and then um Mm. the group out of san francisco 1011 joined it was kind of similar. Like I'd put them into two buckets. 1011 were awesome because not only were they strategic, being a US Silicon Valley VC, the partner we work with, Alex, had started his own security businesses before and all he invests in is security companies. So again, there was like, he understood what we were trying to do and he invested in a lot of companies that came from other countries into the US. So that was also very cool for us. Then Turnbull combination of like, just an unbelievably experienced person. And he, I mean, at least like personally has been an unreal mentor in you know, all sorts of areas I never could have expected to get experience and exposure in, you know, his, and this is what we're betting on, but like his ability to introduce us to the right sort of people that we need to chat to, to talk through different things that happen in the business and help us solve them is, is awesome. And he's super involved. So yeah, I, I, again, it just comes down to like the people, do we get on with them? And, and it was very clear, even from the first conversation that I ever had with him, it just was a good guy that was like really genuinely interested and wanted to to help and and has been that. So I'm glad that our, our guts were correct on that one. Oh, I love that. And I do like looking at your suite of investors now, how impressive it is that you've got those that who are good at relationship building and understand entrepreneurship in the market, you've got those who understand the technology and the Incutel, like to your point, is such an incredible validation. You've got the business-minded roundedness of Malcolm Turnbull who can advise you in different ways as well. I think it's, it's and we've heard this before, like if it's, it can be a really shitty experience if you don't have the right investors on board. So it sounds like you've you've taken that approach, which is really to listen to your gut and and build those relationships with the people to know that this is the right move for for you and the business. Yeah, exactly. And again, I I remember when we first met Dave Shane. The first things he said to us is he wants to work with people that he'll go and get a beer with after work on a Friday afternoon, not because he has to, because he wants to. And that's yeah. that's absolutely something that stuck with me. It's like, yeah, could I see myself wanting to hang out with them versus been obliged to and they all passed that that test yeah fantastic and on that point too so you worked in a small team at the start you've 
built the business across different continents, how important is the team that surrounds you and other founders and mentors? Like how important is your community aspect to your growth, especially being, you know, a founder who started at a young age? Mm. I mean, yeah, absolutely critical. So you probably break that up into your external and the internal. Internally, we've been so lucky with the team that we started with where like really everyone on the team was so dedicated to making this thing work and get it off the ground. And then everyone that we've brought in from an individual contributor to a team lead to a leadership group member, you know, feels the same way. And that's incredible because like all of us were pretty young. None of us have done this before. So there's so many things we don't know and there's stuff that we don't know, we don't know. And so that's why, you know, having folks like Nick, who was our first ever salesperson, even though, you know, technical salesperson, right, has been unbelievable because he taught us so much about how you actually sell to these sort of companies and how you need to work with them. And then Neil coming in as our CMO and his, you know, we'd not really spent a dollar on marketing before for Neil. It was very ad hoc. So for him to come in and go, well, this is what we need to be doing is, is unreal. And there would have been no way we could have, gotten to where we are today without them. absolutely no way so i i feel very very fortunate that the people who have joined wanted to and then from the the outside perspective what i found unbelievably valuable is other founders who are further along than myself so peter at secure code warrior is an awesome example like scw has always been like two two and a half years ahead of us which is mm-hmm. like perfect. I I literally, you know, whenever we were in the same country and whenever we hung out, I'd be like, Peter, mate, we're having having these problems. Like, oh yeah, we had them two years ago. Here's how we solved it. Or here's what you can expect. Like that's been very, very valuable. And also having, you know, him and others who understand what it's like to to be the one, you know, that has to make sometimes the calls, right? Which which not everyone may like is also really good. Because there's a sort, there's a certain empathy that I think is required to understand, you know, what you go through when you're trying to build this stuff and trying to be the one that leads it, which is I found at least very, very valuable. I've heard that from Peter before too. Who I think his his line was, you know, being the CEO is a lonely position. Like it's it's lonely when you're the key decision maker, and how important it is then to have a network of those external people who are a few steps ahead to kind of be a sounding board and your confidants and your support network because it's not easy and it can be so you know there's obviously having a great team is really important but there are some decisions the team can't make and you as you know the head need to make exactly and I think like that's the other side of it is there's you know so many opportunities that, to learn about what's coming. And that's what I really love as well is I remember, you know, a very vivid conversation that I had with Peter over some sushi once and he was sort of laying out what we were going to experience over the next 18 months as we went from, I think we were seven, eight people when we caught up to 20. And mm-hmm. it was bang on. It was unbelievable. And it was very funny to to sort of see how how similar businesses are. And like, I guess it's just any group of people as it gets to certain sizes is going to face the same problems because, you know, unfortunately we're kind of predictable in that sense. Uh, And that gave me a lot of comfort as well, knowing that the things that we're experiencing were not abnormal at all because, Mm. you know, it kind of feels like, am I the only one in the world experiencing this problem or mulling over this potential issue? And to know that, no, you're not, and you're not crazy is very valuable too. 
Yeah. And to, to have that with someone, that relationship with someone as authentic as Peter too, who will just call it as it is and does have this kind of weird, um, we did a podcast with him last year and he was talking about how he had anticipated some kind of financial crisis, not necessarily a pandemic, but some kind of financial crisis. And the business was set up to kind of wear that. And then of course, COVID happened and they're in a great position, but I do think there's a bit of an Oracle aspect to Peter. So he's a good one to have in your team. He is. (laughs) And how has this support network helped you in your growth as a leader? Because obviously like, gosh, in the, the years that you've been at the the helm of Casada, things would have changed for you in how you feel about leadership or what or you know levels mm. of confidence or knowledge or whatever that might be. What's that what's that experience been like for you? One thing that was really awesome was I remember when we very first started, you know, you look up to some of these teams who build businesses and you sort of like, wow, no, you know, I would view them as like these incredible individuals who are untouchable by reality. And what really helped me was the more I met that were, you know, unbelievably successful, like people where you're just like, how is it possible for someone to, and, and a team to do such an incredible thing? They were just regular old dudes and they were weird, right? They were all, they were all just strange. And it sort of was awesome because it's like, okay, they're just normal people. And they would be the first to admit they had no idea what they were doing most of the time. Um, they made educated guesses and they surrounded themselves with people that they thought were incredible as well. And so for me, at least that, that helped me feel more comfortable with not having all the answers and feeling a little underwhelmed or oh, sorry, overwhelmed. And then on the other side was like the leadership team our, our, that we have, right? I, you know, when, when we're building that out, we had to go from no experience in sales, marketing, and all these other areas to try and hire people that we thought knew a lot more than us. And I guess the, the advice that I'd got from a lot of these folk where it was like, you just, as long as you hire people that are smarter than you, you're going to be in a good position. And so doing that's been a huge win for us. Yeah. And those would be the, like the, the very real ways they've, they've impacted. Also, even just, you know, sanity checking stuff is, is unreal because it, it, you know, it's so easy to, to think you're the only one experiencing these problems or the hardships. Right? And you're probably not, which is good because, you know, other people have been through it and, and it always helps to talk about stuff. Oh, absolutely. And then separate to the networks and their impact on on your growth, how do you feel being a leader now? How has that changed? Yeah, what I feel much more strongly about now, well, there'll be two areas than I used to, is first of all, the, the role I can play in helping people get behind what we do. I really undervalued that at the start. I didn't I thought, you know, because I don't I haven't got a lot of experience, I'm not going to be the right person to to lead us into essentially to the goal that we've we've got. But that's definitely changed. Like both surrounding myself with people who have a lot of experience in different areas and then just, you know, sort of seeing what happens when that's not the case, right? When there's someone who's not leading people towards a common goal that they can all get behind. It's given me way more confidence. Confidence to be like, hey, look, I know I don't know everything and I know there's a lot to learn, but I've got the attitude where I want to learn it. And if I don't know it, there's going to be people around in the company who do, who do know it. Mm. Yeah, I think that passion for what you're doing and passion such a ugh, word, like it's always overused, but it's significant. Mm. That And it's contagious. 
And so to recognize that you are like the champion of Casada and that people need you to be that. And that's actually really important for not only working towards that vision, as you mentioned, and, you know, having a kind of clear strategy towards the business growth, mm. but also just for the the enthusiasm, the motivation within the team and the customers. I, I, I think that's, it's such an important thing to recognize, but of course you just, you, you it's hard to see it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. I just didn't really put a lot of value on it and I should have, and I, I sort of, I learned that. And so now I make sure that that's a very central thing to the way I view my role and the contribution that I can make to the business. Fantastic. Sam, we wrap up these conversations with a quick fire round of questions. I really shouldn't call yeah. them quick fire anymore because there's space here for you to answer us um, with as much detail as you like, but I will dive into them now. And it might be some of the stuff we've already covered, but always an interesting way to wrap up, we find. All right. So to kick it off, what's your biggest failure? Oh, God. Um, mate, there'd be a few. I don't know what the biggest one would be, though. That's hard. There's a lot of, there's a lot of time. Like, I can look at so many times, even just like outside of the business where I've done something, which I'm just like, what on earth was I thinking? Um, probably in the company was there were a few like customer pitches which I remember that I just completely botched and then I wasn't I didn't understand like politics in organizations as well as I should have and really rubbed a few people the wrong way accidentally and then blew up a relationship spectacularly in the process (laughs) okay it sounds like you've learned from that process I did yes Your greatest achievement? Um, that's also a hard one. I think there was one moment last year when we were on our, there was a particular all hands, and it's probably a little bit fluffy, which was in like November, early December last year, where mm-hmm. we had the company, you know, with all the company all hands, you know, we we're chatting about some new culture initiatives that we were setting up and whatnot. And there was so much energy and so much excitement from everyone on this call. People were participating, like people were like really, really vocal on this call. This is like, you know, a team of 50. So to get that many people pumped up and energized about something, you know, I'd really not seen before. And like at that point, like I see all these faces on Zoom, that was a bit of old shit moment. Whereas like we have, we have a team that's more than like I truly ever imagined. I mean, when we set out to start this thing, I remember thinking, man, it'd be great if there's someone who, a company that wants to use this that can can pay part of our salaries and we can work other jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And and then to now like have this whole team of like 50 people and more on the way is that was very, very strange and very cool. Especially after a year like last year. So if you're talking like no, yeah. end of the year, after everything that, you know, globally we'd been through and then to see these enthusiastic people, these faces filling your screen, that must have been an incredible experience. Yeah, and half of whom I've never met because we we started the pandemic at like 25, 26 people and ended at a mm. 50, like, you know, yet there's a bond between basically everyone, which is really cool. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. What a great moment. Sam, what's your favourite book? Uh, the Ride of a Lifetime by the former CEO of Disney. 
great. Yeah, and what do you like very, about it? Very, very good. It's a like it's a story of I mean the was he Bob was his name um, who so many things had to line up in his life and his career for that to all happen and he seized the opportunities that were given to him but then you know he went into an organization that was super archaic and had the guts to just flip it on its head mm. and completely change the way things were done. The, you know, some of the ideas that he carries around like trusting the team to, you know, make their own decisions is, I think, you know, super, super important. And it was, you know, cool to read how he did that at Disney. And it's just also super inspiring as to, you know, how how he took such a, you know, such a big global business and really led it through an iconic transformation. I just think that's that's awesome. <laughs> Great. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes so people can nab themselves a copy. It sounds like a, a it's one thing to start your own business from scratch. It's another one to enter and turn something that has had a certain way of functioning yeah. <laughs> on its head. And it's it's cool, you know, he just there's so many moments around like behaviors that he was not okay with that he experienced in other organizations where, you know, when he came to Disney, like culture, culture, culture. And, like, I think mm. it's interesting because so many older businesses tend to just miss that. Yeah. Um, and it shows even at scale, culture is key to success. Yeah. Great. The startup you wish you'd founded. Oh, God. I mean, honestly, I I don't think I could have founded any of the others and I'm so, so proud of Casada. Like, I, I don't know that I'd want to have. <laughs> yeah. I'm, Good again, it's, it's hard, you know. Every so often I've had to force myself to look back and I'm not usually a super introspective person and I don't like to get caught up in what's been achieved because I know there's so much more to achieve. But, yeah, like what I'm so, so, so proud of what we've managed to achieve. It's, yeah, it's very, very humbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good to take stock of. Hmm. And the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, man. I mean, I quote Dave Shane so much but... He's, you know, said a lot of good things that have stuck with me. Honestly, probably the biggest one is, you know, work with people that you, know, you want to get a beer with after work, not because you have to get a beer with them after work. Like that's, yeah. yeah. And then all of his other things about culture and people <laughs> that come after yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, Sam, I love that. And I think that's just, it's been really clear in this conversation, this chat that, it all comes back to people and that relationship building and just, yeah, yep, choosing according to that. Because not every person's for everyone, you know, we're all yeah. you know, the same way we have different friends or different networks um, based on relationships. You know, it's important to find your your like-minded people, those who you want to spend time with, especially when yeah. you're slogging it however many hours a day. You want it, you want it to be fun. Right. Yeah, it's that's it. It's a slog. So you got to get people you can be in the trenches with. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you so much for chatting to us today. Really appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you, Chloe. A huge thanks to Sam for sharing his wisdom with us and always being willing to give back to the community. You can find out more about Casada at casada.io. That's K-A-S-A-D-A dot I-O. And if you're interested to know more about SciRise, head to SciRise.co. That's C-Y-R-I-S-E dot C-O. Catch you next time.